I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hello everyone, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use the text of the Bible to understand this thing called life, and the life that we find in God. For the past two weeks we've been examining the trial of Joseph. Not a trial of Joseph the person, but a trial that Joseph designed to test his brother's hearts and intentions. In the first week, Joseph kept Simeon from the family and he sent the rest of the brothers home with one command. Don't come back without your younger brother, Benjamin. On the surface, this seems like a simple request, but as we examine this request and all of the attached ideas, we discovered that this was perhaps the most difficult thing imaginable for these brothers to accomplish. They had already lost one of their father's favorite son years before, and Jacob was not about to let them have the only one that was left. Add to this that the money was returned to their sacks, so if they returned, they stood the chance of being accused of theft. All it took was enough time and some outside pressure in the form of a famine, and these things that seemed so difficult in the past were suddenly a reality. Benjamin was released into Judah's care, not to Reuben or any of the others, but to Judah. Presents were sent to ease the attitude of Pharaoh's right-hand man, and regardless of what anyone wants, certain things had to be done for the purpose of saving everyone's lives. And so it is that all of the sons of Jacob, including the beloved Benjamin, returned to Egypt to purchase more food. Upon their return, they were treated to a feast in the house of Joseph, and once again Joseph sets up another test. He himself, he serves the brothers food from his own plate. Now, it was an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews, and yet the second-in-command was sharing his own food. And in this sharing, Benjamin is given five times the honor of his brothers. And Joseph was purposely trying to create a rift between the brothers and Benjamin. He wanted to set him apart from them to witness how they would react to this act of honor towards Benjamin and shame towards the rest of them. This meal in and of itself is not the test. It's simply the setup for the test. It's what happens afterward that is the test. The brothers leave the next morning and they begin their escape from this crazy man. And it isn't long before an officer arrives and accuses them of theft. And the search begins. It's Benjamin that's found with the missing cup in his sack at that point. Now comes the real test. What will the brothers do, not just with an accusation, but with all of the evidence pointing to Benjamin's guilt in this matter? They have the option to leave and simply go home without him and wash their hands of the entire episode. They have the option of fighting to release Benjamin from his captivity. Or they can unify behind the leader of this trip and seek a peaceful resolution to this problem. Now, they have no idea what to do at this point. 
At the end of last week's text, Judah states this very fact in verse 44:16. And Judah said, What do we say to my master, or what do we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? Elohim has found out the crookedness of your servants. See, we are my master's slaves, both we and he also, with whom the cup was found. What can we say? What defense could we possibly offer you to allow Benjamin to return home? And this is where the narrative left off last week. What defense could possibly be offered? Well, let's read this week's text and discover what it is that Judah presents as the argument for the release of Benjamin, and then the fallout that results from these words. Genesis 44.18-46.27 And Yehuda came near to him and said, O oh, my master, please let your servant speak a word in my master's hearing, and do not let your displeasure burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My master asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to our master, We have a father, an old man, and a young child of his old age, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, and let me set my eyes on him. And we said to my master, The boy is not able to leave his father, for if he leaves his father, his father shall die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you do not see my face again. And it came to be, when he went up to your servant my father, that we told him the words of my master. And our father said, Go back and buy a little food. But we said, We are not able to go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we shall go. For we are not able to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant my father said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Truly he is torn, torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. And if you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you shall bring down my gray hair with evil to Sheol. And now if I come to your servant my father, and the boy is not with us, since his own life is bound up in his life, then it shall be when he sees that the boy is not with us, that he shall die, so your servants shall bring down the gray hair of your servant our father with evil to Sheol. For your servant went guarantee for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall be a sinner before my father forever. And now please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a slave to my master, and let the boy go up with his brothers. For how do I go up to my father if the boy is not with me, lest I see the evil that would come upon my father? And Yosef was unable to restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he called out, Have everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Yosef made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Mitzrites and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Yosef said to his brothers, I am Yosef, is my father still alive? But his brothers were unable to answer him, for they trembled before him. Then Yosef said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And when they came near, he said, I am Yosef, your brother, whom you sold into Mitzrayim. And now do not be grieved nor displeased with yourselves, because you sold me here. For Elohim sent me before you to preserve life. For two years now the scarcity of food has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there is neither plowing nor harvesting. And Elohim sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to give life to you by a great escape. So then you do not send me here but Elohim, and he has sent me for a father to Pharaoh and master of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Mitzrayim. Hurry, and go up to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Yosef, Elohim has made me master of all Mitzrayim. Come down to me, do not delay. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and be near to me, 
you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have, and I shall provide for you there, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, because five years of scarcity of food are still to come. And look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Binyamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. And you shall inform my father of all my honor in Mitzrayim, and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell on his brother Binyamin's neck and wept, and Binyamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers spoke with him. And the report of it was heard by the house of Pharaoh, saying, The brothers of Yosef have come, and it was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants. And Pharaoh said to Yosef, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go, enter the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I give you the best of the land of Mitzrayim, and you eat the fat of the land, and you, you have been commanded, do this. Take wagons out of the land of Mitzrayim for your little ones and your wives, and you shall bring your father and come, and do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Mitzrayim is yours. And the sons of Israel did so, and Yosef gave them wagons according to the mouth of Pharaoh, and he gave them food for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Binyamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father this, ten donkeys loaded with the best of Mitzrayim, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and food for his father and for their journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they left, and he said to them, Do not quarrel along the way. And they went up out of Mitzrayim and came to the land of Canaan to Yaakov their father. And they told him, saying, Yosef is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Mitzrayim. And Yaakov's heart ceased, for he did not believe them. But when they spoke to him all the words which Yosef had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons which Yosef had sent to transport him, the spirit of Yaakov their father revived. And Yisrael said, Enough! My son Yosef is still alive. Let me go and see him before I die. And Yisrael set out with all that he had, and came to Beersheba, and sacrificed sacrifices to the Elohim of his father Yitzhak. And Elohim spoke to Yisrael in the vision of the night, and said, Yaakov, Yaakov. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am the El, Elohim of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Mitzrayim, for I shall make you there into a great nation. I myself am going down with you to Mitzrayim, and I myself shall certainly bring you up again, and let Yosef put his hands on your eyes. And Yaakov rose from Beersheba, and the sons of Yisrael brought their father Yaakov and their little ones and their wives and their wagons which Pharaoh had sent to transport them. And they took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Mitzrayim, Yaakov and all his seed with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed he brought with him to Mitzrayim. And these were the names of the children of Yisrael, Yaakov and his sons, who came into Mitzrayim. Reuven was Yaakov's firstborn, and the sons of Reuven, Chanuk and Palu and Chetron and Kamri, and the sons of Shimon, Yemuel and Yanmin and Ohad and Yachin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, and the sons of Levi, Gershon and Kahat and Merari, and the sons of Yehuda, Ur and Onan and Shelah, and Peretz and Zerach, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan, and the sons of Peretz were Chetron and Chamur, and the sons of Yisachar, Tola and Puva, and Yov, and Shimron, and the sons of Zebulun, Sared, and Elon, and Yachleel. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Yaakov, and Padan Aram, with his daughter Dina. All the beings, his sons and his daughters, were thirty-three. And his sons of God, Tziphion, and Chagi, and Shuni, and Etzron, Eri, and Erodi, and Arali. 
and the sons of Asher, Yimna and Yishva, and Yishvi, and Beriah, and Serach, their sister, and the sons of Beriah, Hever, and Malkiel. And these were the sons of Zilpah, whom Levan gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Yaakov, sixteen beings. And the sons of Rachel, Yaakov's wife, Yosef and Benjamin, and to Yosef in the land of Mitzrayim were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenat, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Echi and Rosh, Mupim and Chupim and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel, who were born to Yaakov, fourteen beings in all. And the son of Dan, Chushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Yachzer and Guni, and Yetzer and Shalem. And these were the sons of Bilhah, whom Lavan gave to Rachel his daughter, and she bore to Yaakov seven beings in all. All the beings who went with Yaakov to Mitzrayim, who came from his body, besides Yaakov's sons' wives, were sixty-six beings in all. And the sons of Yosef who were born to him in Mitzrayim were two beings. All the beings of the house of Yaakov who went into Mitzrayim were seventy. All right, as we begin to discuss this Parsha, let's not forget that Judah has been through a lot in the interim between when he offered the idea to sell Joseph into slavery and the day that is being told of in the text. Now, Judah, at some point, he got married. He had sons. His sons even got married and then died, first one and then another. In his desire to save his sons, Judah ended up betraying the covenant that he had made with Tamar the wife of his sons. And that story ended up with Tamar taking matters into her own hands in order to uphold the terms of the covenant, albeit in a less than desirable manner. And doing so, it put her at odds with Judah, and he declares that she is to be put to death for her transgression of the covenant, completely missing out on his own hypocrisy in the same area. And it's only once this hypocrisy is revealed that Judah admits that Tamar had indeed been faithful and righteous in her actions, and it was himself that had acted faithlessly. Now Judah is in the exact same circumstance with just a different twist. He's made a promise to keep to his father. And this episode with Tamar taught him that regardless of what loss may result, that he needs to stay true to the covenant. And that staying true to one's word supersedes any other concern. And so it is with this idea that Judah presents his argument. First, he gives a fuller background of what just occurred. You, he says to the strange foreign official, you bear some of the responsibility in this because you forced us to bring Benjamin to you. And we warned you that he couldn't leave his father without endangering his life. But you wouldn't relent. And we went home, and when father asked us to return again, we told him that we couldn't return without Benjamin. And then Judah relates some of the backstory of why it is that Benjamin is so precious to his father. He's the only remaining son of his favored wife, and the other the other's dead somewhere. And in verse 22, we caught the first glimpse of the hinge of Judah's defense. In verses 29 through 31, Judah then develops this central idea further. If we return to my father without his son, he will, in fact, die. Then in verse 32, Judah tells of his own responsibility to return Benjamin to his father. He says, I pledged my own honor and my own status on his return. If we do not return him, I will be a sinner before my father forever. I will be an outcast. Perhaps I'll even be exiled. And then with this background, Judah then presents his final offer. Let the boy go for the sake of my father's life. 
Take me instead, and I will serve as a slave in his place. I will lose everything, and not for Benjamin's sake, not for your sake, but for no other purpose than that I pledged myself as his guardian, and I have failed. But add to that that if I return without Benjamin, my father will indeed die. Please, for the sake of my father, let me take his place. Now, if this had been Judah's attitude 15 years previously, Joseph never would have been sold. None of this would have happened. And yet it did. In his defense, Judah reveals something that's so vitally important for us to understand. We're told in other places in Scripture that we are to be a nation of kings and priests. And it is from Judah that this line of kings eventually comes. And in his argument, he reveals one of the most important facts about leadership that a person can learn. A leader is responsible for his men. If one of his men fails, it is the leader's responsibility, whether the leader commanded it or intended it or even knew about it or not. And this lesson is one that is taught in the military that most civilians never quite understand and that our modern individualistic society is trying to suppress. In the army, when a man does not polish his boots, that failure falls on his sergeant as well as on that man. If a man's rifle does not fire due to lack of care, that failure falls on his lieutenant as well as on the man. If the man kills another in a training accident, it is the captain who bears the weight of the responsibility of that death, regardless of who caused the death. And it's with this mindset that Moses states in Exodus 32.32, And now, if you would forgive their sins, do. But if not, please, blot me out of the book of which you have written. He was willing to pay the ultimate price for the sin of those who were under his leadership. And it's with this idea in mind that Yeshua allowed himself to be sacrificed for the sake of each and every one of us. We have failed, and we are under his authority. It was his duty to pay the price for our failure. He did not intend for sin. He did not make an allowance for sin. He did not even desire for sin to occur. And yet it did under his authority and under his watch. And as such, God himself as the perfect leader and ultimate authority recognized that it was his responsibility to pay the price for the failure. Now, as kings in this world, this is an attitude that we must acquire. A leader is not and cannot be concerned with his own rights. A leader can only ever be concerned with his duty, his responsibility. If Yeshua had been concerned with his right to life, he never would have allowed himself to be put to death on false charges. If Yeshua had been focused on his right to liberty, he never would have allowed himself to be captured in the first place. And happiness? Well, true happiness is something that finds you in the form of Yeshua. It's not something that you find. In 1959, author Robert Heinlein uh, states in his book, Starship Troopers, now, if you've seen the movie, forget that. The movie is trash. But the book is an excellent discussion on soldier life and what it means to be a soldier. So he says in this book, Ah, yes, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life? What right to life has a man who is drowning in the Pacific? The ocean will not hearken to his cries. What right to life has a man who must die to save his children? 
If he chooses to save his own life, does he do so as a matter of right? If two men are starving and cannibalism is the only alternative to death, which man's right is unalienable? And is it right? As to liberty, the heroes who signed the great document pledged themselves to buy liberty with their lives. Liberty is never unalienable. It must be redeemed regularly with the blood of patriots or it always vanishes. Of all the so-called natural human rights that have ever been invented, liberty is least likely to be cheap and it is never free of cost. The third right, the pursuit of happiness, it is indeed an unalienable, but it is not a right. It is simply a universal condition which tyrants cannot take, nor patriots restore. Cast me into a dungeon, burn me at the stake, crown me king of kings. I can pursue happiness as long as my brain lives. But neither gods nor saints, wise men nor subtle drugs can ensure that I will catch it. He concludes after a few more pages with, A human being has no natural rights of any nature. And after a lot of consideration, I agree with this statement. And I believe the Bible does as well. In fact, we will see this very idea reflected in the text as Joseph sells the grain of the people back to them at the cost of their lives. If life and liberty were rights, then Joseph is one of the greatest transgressors. And if life and liberty were not God-given rights then, then they're not God-given rights now. Now, don't get me wrong. The fiction of rights is one that has served in many ways to protect citizens from the abuse of government power. But in this shift of idea, the person who takes another's life is guaranteed the right to his own life. But if life is a gift and someone revokes that gift early, then there's a different response called for by the Bible. If it's a right, we have no right to take it away from a person who's committed murder. But if it is a gift, then it can be revoked. Now, humans were not endowed with rights in the beginning. Life is a gift. It is not a right. Man was given a place and a responsibility in the garden, and Judah demonstrates in his defense that he understands this. In fact, Judah reverses the declaration of Cain, where Cain said, Am I my brother's keeper? And Judah answers with a definitive, Yes, I am my brother's keeper. It is my duty, my responsibility, regardless of what it means for me. He must be protected, and it is each one of our duties to do so. Life itself, alongside being a gift, is also a responsibility. It's a duty. It's something that we must use properly, and it is our sacred duty to use our lives in the pursuit of the goals that God has set for us, to rule and to reign in this world, and to learn properly to take up this role. We have already been gifted authority through Yeshua. But we have to learn to use it properly, otherwise we will corrupt all that we touch. And it's only in the moment that Judah embraces his position of authority and bends his entire will and power towards family unity that Joseph takes all of the authority that he has been given by Pharaoh and he uses it for the same purpose. Family unity. And so it is as the next chapter opens that Joseph is finally satisfied. Even if he had more tests in mind, the fact that Judah would argue so selflessly for the sake of not Benjamin, but rather for the sake of his father, 
and for the sake of his responsibility and duty to his family. And so everyone is sent from the room, and Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. It's me, Joseph! And for his brothers, the bottom drops out once again, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Oh, the shock on their faces, it must have been evident, because Joseph then repeats himself, I, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now for the past months, or even a year at a minimum, the brothers had this event rolling around in the back of their minds ever since they had been thrown in prison for three days on their previous visit. Simeon had been kept, and they had been sent home with silver in their sacks, and suddenly, suddenly this powerful man went from strange, unknown, to a dangerous and vindictive brother. Even if Joseph follows up this revelation with a speech about how he doesn't hold them responsible, and that the misfortune that he has experienced has all been part of God's plan. In fact, Joseph believes this, and he tells them that this was God's plan all along, and that the evil that they had done to him was God's way of sending him before them in order to prepare for saving life. Joseph saw in his own enslavement God's great salvation, what we would call a Red Sea moment. The brothers apparently seem incredulous at this revelation, and so it is that Joseph has to call out the similarity of features that he shares with his brother Benjamin. Look at Benjamin's eyes. Look at his mouth. We have the same features. This is, of course, being said through a Hebrew idiom, rather than straight out. And then he requests that his father be brought to Egypt before finally weeping over his brothers as they finally reunite once more. Well, Pharaoh hears of this, and he also is pleased. And so he commands that the brothers bring Jacob, bring your father back to Egypt. And then he promises to give them the best of the land. Now, this is a very central idea in an honor-shame society. It's not what you know, it's not what you've done, but it's who you know. In our Western mindsets, if a person is made great, their family is not part of the greatness. We are extremely individualistic, and that is partially fed by the idea of the rights of the individual. In honor-shame societies, are very communal, and so when one person is raised in honor, it brings shame to that person if their family is in poverty or need. How can I have honor when my brother is begging bread? Instead, because of the honor that's been granted to Joseph, all of his family too must be in a position of honor. And so the entire family receives the best of the land of Egypt for the sake of Joseph, who is the second in command. Go to your people, Pharaoh says. Don't worry about your goods. You will have the best of Egypt. It is yours. And so Joseph gives the things commanded by Pharaoh, the wagons to transport the people and food for the journey. He then honors each of his brothers by giving them clothing. In the Bible, the act of giving clothing is a sign of bestowing honor, especially if the clothing is costly. In today's society, it might be likened to a certain type of shoe or the car you drive, the thing that people see you in and that they connect with your status and your place in the world. Once again, though, Joseph honors Benjamin with five times the honor of his brothers. They all receive honor. It's just that Benjamin receives more. Then he sends them off with the admonition to not quarrel as they travel. And Joseph knew his brothers. They may have grown and they may have become more responsible, but they haven't changed so much that they don't still have their disagreements. The thing is that their disagreements didn't change the status as brothers or change Joseph's love for them and the honor that they had yet to receive.
And that's a lesson we could all stand to learn from. When the brothers get home, they tell their father of the good news. Joseph is still alive, and he's the master in Egypt. And Jacob's heart ceased, it says in my translation. Other translations say that Jacob was amazed or that Jacob was stunned. The Hebrew says, or that he had a numb heart or a feeble heart. Some treat this as an idiom, as most translations seem to treat the statement. Others take it more literally and state that, oh, Jacob had a heart attack at this news. Uh, that's immaterial. It's only once Jacob sees the cart and the donkeys and provisions that Jacob finally believes. And in my translation, it says that his spirit revived. In the Hebrew, it says, ruach, his spirit lived. And it is with this that Jacob declares that it's time to go see Joseph. So Israel sets out with his entire family. Along the way, he stops. He stops at a place that both his father and grandfather had made covenants at. That place, Beersheba, the well of seven or the well of the oath. It's the place that both Abraham and Isaac made a covenant with the Gentile king, Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And it's here that Jacob has a vision in the night. Now, this is not a dream as we've seen previously in the, the story of Joseph. The word for dream is a chalom. The Hebrew word here is bamar ot halayla, or a vision from the root word ra, in the night, layla. In this vision, God first identifies himself, not by name, but by title alone. Then he comforts and eases Jacob's fears. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I myself am going down with you. Then he promises a hope for the future of his line. He says, I myself shall certainly bring you out once again. And then he offers a personal hope. Joseph will be the one to close your eyes upon your death. That's a lot of hope right there. And it's hope on so many levels, not just for his family, but for himself and it's with this that jacob travels to egypt and everyone who is in his family in canaan the, the 70 people related to him in the years since jacob had left laban his family had increased from 18 to 70. now he's leaving behind the land of promise that has become a desolation to him and he's moving into the only place on earth that has been blessed by god in this tragedy that place is egypt and in Egypt, Jacob has prepared for him a place of bounty, plenty, and growth. And that's where this Parsha ends. Jacob is on the way to Egypt, sitting snugly in the carts that had been provided for him and his family to make their journey. He's facing the unknown, but with great hope and joy in his heart. He's still likely in a bit of disbelief that this could be happening after many years of heartache that he had experienced, that one of his lost relatives is being returned. Joseph wasn't dead. So I've already touched on some pretty big scale topics today. And I hopefully challenged you in some way, as I've challenged myself as I studied through this. Uh, topics like authority and duty and rights. But do you want one more? One more large scale topic? Now, I don't want these topics to be lost completely if we shift course just a bit, because knowing these things to be true can change your life drastically. 
When you stop looking at life as a right, but rather as a gift and a responsibility, you begin to change as a person. When you stop looking at liberty as something that just happens, but begin to question that if this is the goal that we should be seeking and fighting for, the kingdom of God is not liberty. It's a kingdom that's ruled with an iron rod by a benign dictator, by a king. Liberty itself is a useful tool, but we must use it as a space in which to do the will of our great Lord and Master. It's a tool. It's not an end. And happiness? The joy comes from Hashem. But happiness, as Robert Heinlein says, happiness consists in getting enough sleep. Just that, nothing more. Or, as I would say it, happiness is found in shalom. It's found in peace, rest, welcome, greeting, completeness, and friendship. Simply stated, faith. Happiness is found in faith. When you stop looking at authority as something that others have, but recognize that you yourself have authority even now, that you have been granted authority by Yeshua, our Master, then that authority is then to be exercised in His name. And this idea of a name is something we're going to explore in great detail when we get to Exodus. But authority itself is too great a responsibility, as it means that everything that happens within your realm of influence is directly attributable to you. Authority is responsibility, not just in responsibility for what must be done, responsibility for what is done by those under your authority. It's the willingness to become low so that you might save those who depend on you. It's the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go and to find the one. Now, these are heavy concepts that can take time to properly mull over and to really, to really consider and incorporate into your life. But one more. So in Judaism and in Christianity, the story of Joseph is seen as one that's an archetype of the Messiah. And in both, they're right. Joseph is indeed an archetype of the Messiah, and we examined many of those ways in the last few weeks. Last week, we looked at how Yeshua modeled for us how to deal with shame that is reflected in the stories of both Judah and Joseph. That model is to take the shame upon yourself and to realize that you do in fact deserve the shame. And then with that insight, you can begin to take the shame of others upon yourself as Yeshua did for us. Two weeks ago, we saw in the story of the banquet that's set for all of the sons of Jacob in which the master serves all and the least one is rewarded greater than most. And the week before that, we looked at the reversal of fortune that all of the brothers found in an instant. And the low was brought high, and the high was brought low. The lesson that Yeshua taught over and over in his ministry. Now, I could go on with lessons that I have skipped for the sake of continuity, but that we might cover before the end of Genesis. But this week, I want to look at Jacob's reaction when he heard of Joseph. When he heard of the one who was to bring salvation, the favored son who looked like the nations, who in his role among the nations created a way for life to exist in the midst of a world of death, the man who provided the bread of life to the multitudes, the chosen right hand of power that had been sent away from his own family in shame. 
When Jacob hears of Joseph still being alive, Jacob's heart ceases. Then, upon further examination of the facts, his spirit lives. The way that it's stated in the text, it gives us an early example of what it means to really hear the good news of the gospel. What is the gospel in essence? Well, the gospel is the kingdom of God is coming here. It is here. It's the promise that's given to the prophets, this return to Eden. No more sickness, no more death. But in order for this to happen, a son had to leave his father and had to take on shame. He was required to remain faithful in the midst of his lowly station. And in being faithful, he was raised up to a higher position. After years of faithful obedience, the son was raised to the right hand of power for the purpose of preserving and saving life in the midst of a world of death. And now there is a land in which the Son is alive, and He's calling each of us to come and to live with Him by His side. He has given His family the greatest and the most fertile part of the land. And upon hearing this news, our, our heart stops in our chest. If we truly hear the gospel, we die to ourselves in that moment. There is something greater that exists, and we, we can be part of it. We're being called by the Son that was dead but is now alive. Upon full acceptance, our spirit lives. Finally, for the first time, our spirit is given the gift of life. And then comes the journey. The journey to live at the side of our Savior. And to get there, we must travel. We must grow, we must stretch ourselves and enter into a place of discomfort and the unknown. Because our Savior, he waits for us in a fertile land. He waits for the sons of Jacob to unite and to come together under one purpose. Ephraim and Judah join together in a singularity of purpose. And it's in this time when the family is traveling to arrive at the side of our Savior that unity is vitally important. We should seek to avoid quarrels while we travel in this life, while we travel the road of the kingdom. The sons of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph, and the entire family, when the good news was shared and heard, they worked together with a unity and a singularity of purpose to arrive at the place that was prepared for them. We too, we have this call. Can you hear it? The Savior is calling, join me, come to me, and it's on us to work in unity as we seek to journey to the kingdom of God. And as we derish chai, as we seek the path that brings and preserves life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.